Why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to continue in the book of Mark together. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please open the blue one in the pew back in front of you. If you need a Bible, please take that blue one home with you. Um, we would love for that to be our gift to you. Uh, we love giving away those Bibles. The Word of God is so precious to us. Uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God. If you want to grow your faith, open your Bible. If you want to grow your faith, be with us as we open our Bibles. Okay, Mark chapter 2. Mark's toward the last part of your Bible. Second book of the, what's called the New Testament. It's a gospel. Gospel means good news. Good news of Jesus according to Mark. Mark sat at the feet of Peter, the disciple, as he's writing his gospel. He interviews Peter. I think we're all just about there. Okay. Um, every once in a while, I'll have somebody ask me why so often, especially in the welcome, why I so often we talk about being sinners. Sometimes people will come across and say, isn't that embarrassing? You call yourself a sinner, I get that, but you call everybody else sinners? Isn't that embarrassing? It's not embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. And it doesn't embarrass us for one very important reason. We are desperate for Jesus, and Jesus only came for sinners. Are you with me? Why are we so comfortable calling ourselves sinners? Well, you're a preacher. You're not supposed to be a sinner. You're supposed to have all this figured out. Why are we so comfortable calling ourselves sinners? Because we have found Jesus Christ so compelling. We have found Jesus Christ so glorious and so awesome. And what we have found is that Jesus comes and he says, I have only come for sinners. What group do I want to be in? Not only is it true that I'm a wicked sinner, but I want to be a sinner because that's, the people that Jesus came for. Jesus only came for sinners. And what's the flip side of that coin? Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. But that's kind of a difficult concept to wrap your mind around. I think if you haven't grown up in church, you haven't been in church for a long time, that might be a hard thing to wrap your mind around, that, that we're all sinners. And especially this, it's hard to wrap our minds around that Jesus would come for sinners. I might think that Jesus would come for righteous people. Jesus might come for people who, who do their best to please God. Maybe they've got a little bit of sin in them, but I think Jesus might come for people who are really sinners with a heart of gold. That might be who I see Jesus coming for. Well, today we're going to see out of the mouth of the man himself, the reason Jesus came was for wicked sinners. And I, for one, am very happy about that. So, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to read this together. We're going to read this passage together. We're going to take some stops to kind of get the idea and get the picture of what's going on. And then we're going to talk about three important statements that come from this passage of Scripture. It talks about Jesus coming for sinners. Mark chapter 2, big number 2. We're going to start with little number 13. We're going to take a few commercial breaks. 
Big number two, little number 13. goes like this. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching him. Okay, commercial break. We saw the crowds last week. Last week was all about the crowds. These people have heard that Jesus heals people. They've heard that Jesus casts out demons. They've heard that Jesus speaks as no man ever has. And so many, 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 many people are chasing Jesus down. Maybe they're looking for healings. Maybe they're looking to watch something incredible. Maybe they're looking to hear someone incredible. But they're, 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 they're running after him for all these different reasons. And we open up this passage and the same is true. Jesus goes out and he's beside the sea and the crowds are just following and following and following. And what's important to see here is anytime we see the word teaching that Jesus taught them, we need to remember what is he teaching them? What's his message? Is his message how to be a better person? Is his message out of an obscure part of the Old Testament? Is he just teaching through the Bible? What is he teaching? We know what he's teaching. Mark starts out and he says, he tells us Jesus has come and he started his ministry and Jesus says, this is the message that I've come to proclaim. The kingdom of God is near. If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, it's near. The gates are wide open. Now is the time to become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus' message is this. This is how you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Repent from your sins. Turn from your sins. And believe the good news. What's the good news? That Jesus has come to save sinners. So can you get the picture in your mind? I mean, it's almost comical that Jesus is walking along the sea and he's probably wanting to be alone sometimes and the crowd is just swamping him, swamping him, swamping him and he preaches this message as much as he can, as loudly as, as he can, as clearly as he can. And then he goes a few more yards and they swamp him again. We're going to see him have to get in a boat to escape this crowd and go far enough away where he can proclaim it to them. And they're just following him, following him, and his message is the same. The kingdom of God is near. Turn from your sins and believe the good news that I am here to save sinners. That's the message. That's why Jesus has come. Last week we saw that Jesus didn't come to physically heal people. Out of his compassion, he will do that. But that's not the reason he came. He did not come to show us the best way to live our earthly lives, although we get that from him. That's not the reason he came. The reason he came is to forgive sinners. Let's continue. Verse 14. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, rose and followed him. If you're reading this in Israel 2,000 years ago, you go, you read this and you say, what is he doing? A tax collector? 
Now, we might not be the biggest fans of the IRS around here. Anybody just love, anybody send a thank you card to the IRS after you send your taxes? I don't, right? We might not be the biggest fans of the IRS, but we love them a whole lot more than ancient Israel loved tax collectors. Jewish tax collectors were employed by the Roman puppet King Herod. That's who tax collectors worked for. Of the list of vile men in Jewish society, if you were to rank everybody from their sinfulness, from how bad people are, if you wanted to rank occupations, at the worst level, at the bottom of this ranking, they placed tax collectors in the same category as murderers. And it's not just about a money thing. Tax collectors were universally despised for their dishonesty. They would use force and intimidation to collect money from you. Not only that, these were Jewish men partnering with the Roman occupier to get money to pay the army that is occupying your country. And not only that, these tax collectors would they'd make a fortune. They'd send enough to the Romans to do their job, and then they would take a bunch off the top. Tax collectors were government-sanctioned mafia members. And of course, when you throw in Israel, and you throw in the temple, and you throw in God, the one true God, tax collectors were seen as Jews who were traitors to God and to country. They were outcasts. You sign your name on the dotted line to become a tax collector, you are kicked out of church. You are kicked out of the synagogue. It's so bad, they were considered subhuman that the Jewish religious leaders would say, it's not a sin to lie to a tax collector. And so we have Jesus teaching to the crowds. He's walking along the sea. They're, vroom, they're following him. Vroom, I'm following him. And this crowd is following. And Jesus comes across this tax booth, probably on a, a, a bridge somewhere or a heavily trafficked state highway. His booth is set up. And what this man would do, probably around the sea, is that he would, he would see what you're taking different places and he would tell you what tax you need to pay him. Around the sea, what do you think are, are what do you think is taxed? What, what industry is taxed around the sea? Fishing. Who is following Jesus? Fishermen. Peter and Andrew, James and John, more than likely knew Levi. Despised Levi. Levi had probably been dishonest to them at some point. Levi had probably taken too much off the top for their liking. Levi, they knew. They looked him in the eye and they saw a traitor. They saw someone who is subhuman. Not just those four disciples, but think about the crowd too. The crowd knew who this guy was. What a sermon. For the crowd following and for the disciples who 
who despised this man. He looks at Levi. He says, follow me. You've got to think Peter's going, Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. You've got to think Peter's saying, wait, you're calling Levi the same way you called me. Think of their shock when Jesus, the man they are following, the man they are do- d- devoting their lives to, the man they have seen do incredible things, Jesus turns to this traitor to God, this sinner above sinners, as bad as a murderer, and he looks at him and says, you follow me. And then we get a beautiful picture, as we've seen in the other disciples, we get a beautiful picture of what it takes to follow Jesus. What does it take? Radical abandonment. He's got this lucrative job. Yeah, he's despised by the world, but he is getting paid well for it. And what does he do to follow Jesus? What's it require to follow Jesus? Radical abandonment. He leaves his booth and he follows Jesus. Maybe that's how you felt when you came to Christ. Maybe you felt despised by the world and you heard that Jesus comes to save sinners and you know how big of a sinner you are. Maybe that's how you came to Christ. He says, follow me. And you said, Jesus wants me? I'm going to leave everything behind and follow this man. Maybe that's how you were saved. Maybe you're here today and you're not saved. Maybe you're here for the first time that no matter what is in your past, no matter what sins are on your, your docket, no matter what you have done in your life, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, follow me. Maybe that's for you today. Let's continue. Verse 15. Verse 15. And as he reclined at table... In his house, in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Levi gets so excited about this change in his life, about this religious leader that he has heard from that proclaims the good news that he has come to save sinners. And he comes to Levi, who who must know he's the biggest sinner around. And Jesus says, follow me. What does Levi do? He, He abandons his whole life. He follows Jesus, and he's so happy about it. He throws a party. And he invites all the other big sinners in town. Come on! This guy, Jesus has called me. You know how scummy I am. He's called me to follow him. I'm leaving everything behind to follow him. So he throws this big party. He's reclining at the table. Jews would sit at chairs for normal meals. But when you have a banquet, when you have a party, when you have something that's intimate with your friends, you recline. You put some pillows down and you all lay on your side, put a hand on your head and you eat. When we've got the Last Supper, this is how intimate these things are. When you get the Last Supper, we have Jesus and John eating together. And the disciple John is so close as they're talking to each other, he says, I laid my head on his breast. That's the intimate nature of this. And in this, we get the idea of the crowd who followed Jesus. When we take into account all the Gospels, we, we get this picture of who's following Jesus. We get, we get the core three. Peter, James, and John are the core three. Then we get the 12 apostles. 
And often we think that that was it. That was all the disciples. No, there were more disciples. Disciples, disciples followed Jesus. There's a greater group of disciples after the twelve. And then you have a greater crowd of followers. So that's kind of the inner and outer workings of who followed Jesus. And what's interesting about Jesus, what compares to his crowd against every, every other rabbi's crowd, is that Jesus' crowd was a motley crew. If Jesus' crowd is walking down the street and you're driving through them, you're going to lock your doors. If you see them walking towards you on the street, you're going to cross to the other side. Jesus' followers were the motley crew of sinners, tax collectors, the poor, the rich, men and women, outcasts, ordinary people, and notorious sinners. That's who followed Jesus. How do you think that crowd looks to the religious people of their day? Maybe let's take this home. How would you feel entering a church where you looked around and you go, boy, that guy knocked over the bank last week. That guy over there beat that guy up at the back of the alley. That guy over there broke into my house, stole something. How would you feel about that? So what do the religious, how do the religious leaders feel? Verses 16. Verse 16, are you ready? Verse 16, what's the religious leader's response? And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These are not just normal, everyday sinners. These are wicked sinners. These are sinners that their sins are notorious. These aren't just normal people. Maybe the Pharisees would be okay with Jesus out by the sea calling these people to come back to God and to repent. Maybe they're okay with that message, but maybe not. But what they weren't okay with, here's a saying of the rabbis of the time. You don't even go near a sinner even so much to teach that sinner the law. Say it this way, if you're a religious leader and you see a sinner, you go the other way. Don't even get near enough to him to tell him how he's a sinner and why he should stop sinning and go back to God. Don't even have that conversation. What gets the Pharisees riled up is that Jesus, a spiritual leader who knows the Bible, who is preaching the kingdom of God, saying he is from God, this man Jesus brings sinners close. He's he's reclining with them. The scandal. He brings sinners into a close, intimate friendship. The Pharisees are thinking, this is going to throw our whole racket out of whack. You can't have these people being disciples. We can't have a religious leader running around town being friends with sinners. What does Jesus say? Verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. Wow. 
Jesus' response to his critics, the ones who will eventually kill him for this very thing, will say, my message of repentance and belief in the good news for the forgiveness of sins to enter into the kingdom of God is reserved exclusively for sinners. This is a common traditional proverb of the time. It's not in the Bible, not one of those kind of proverbs. It's a saying of the time. A doctor is for the sick, not the well. So they all knew what Jesus was saying. They're using some of the same words that they might have used in their very teachings. And we need to pick up the irony here. So these Pharisees are walking around to Jesus, following Jesus, hearing the things that he's saying, seeing that him him cure the sick, cast out demons, preach like nobody's ever preached before. They see this spiritual man coming, doing incredible things, and Jesus says, I have not come for the righteous, but the sinner. What should be on their heart? If this guy's from God and I think I'm righteous, I might miss what he's got. And what's the irony here? Irony is the Pharisees think that they're righteous, What is Jesus really saying? I've come for everybody because everybody is a sinner. Some of the Pharisees will get that later. Some of them won't. The Pharisees and the religious people are in danger of missing the kingdom of God because they believe they are righteous and right with God by their good works. When in fact, they need Jesus just as much as Levi the tax collector. What does this mean for us? Well, please hear me. If you think that you are good enough to be right with God because of the things you do, you are sorely mistaken. If you think if you buy into what the world tells you, this lie from the devil, that if your scales will tip, if you do good enough, good enough works over here, outweigh your bad works, then, then God will surely let you into heaven. If you believe that, that is a lie that will send you to hell. Prophet Isaiah says it this way, even the best works that we do, our bloody, stinky, filthy rags to God. Best sermon I ever preach will be nothing but a dirty, smelly, bloody rag to God. I need Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus came for me because I'm a sinner. Here's the good news. Jesus came for you. Jesus says, I have come for the sick. I've come for the sick, he says, not the healthy. I have come for the sinner, not those who think they are righteous. Let's unpack this a little bit. This means Jesus is telling us we all have a disease. All of us were born with a disease, and the disease is called sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our disease. The prognosis, not good. The forecast of the outcome of the disease is not good. Romans 1.18 tells us what is going to happen to us if we continue in this disease. The wrath of God 
is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is so good and he's so holy that he has got nothing but wrath for sin. Now we might think, well, I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm better than that guy over there. Why should you get to set the standard? If Isaiah is right, the best things that you have are like dirty, filthy rags to God. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is compared to a cup. The cup of God's wrath being filled up. And God is patient in his wrath and it fills up. But eventually the cup will fill to the point of overflowing. And the patience of God will end. Romans 6.23 says it this way. The wages of sin is death. What I earn for my sin is death. Death where? The prognosis, the ultimate outcome for me living in my sin apart from Jesus is to be separated from God forever in hell. I know it's not a fun thing to talk about, especially in our culture. We don't like talking about hell. Do you know who did talk about hell a lot? Jesus. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. And he used more vivid language about hell than anyone else. Jesus believes in hell. He believes it will be terrible beyond belief. And I believe in Jesus. And like, the, like Levi, who's a wicked sinner, and Jesus calls him to follow him, I follow Jesus. If I follow Jesus, I follow his words. And his words say that hell is real and it is tremendously awful. Jesus says this about hell. He says, hell is eternal, term, eternal torment, Luke 16, 23. Hell is unquenchable fire, Mark 9, 43. The, where the worm does not die, Mark 9, 48. Where people gnash their teeth in anguish, anger, and regret, Matthew 13, 24. And where there is no return, Luke 16. These are all the words of Jesus. My disease is sin. My prognosis is death in hell. And this disease that we have is terminal. With every ounce of human effort that I can have, I will not be cured of my disease. The Pharisees thought that their disease was lesser than the sinners. The Pharisees thought, well, I have a cold and they've got brain cancer. Or the Pharisees thought, I've got this home remedy that I can work really, really hard and take away my, my disease. You might have cancer, they say, but I have a cold and I will get better with the right actions, trying to please God and myself, with following all the rules. I can heal myself. Maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you feel like, I'm not that bad. I've got the sniffles. I don't have cancer. So Jesus, you could stay way over there. I'm sure I'll figure this out. And then Jesus comes and he preaches a sermon in Matthew 5 that blows this attitude out of the water. You think you have the sniffles, Jesus says. You have cancer. He says it this way. You've heard it said, 
don't commit adultery. Everybody's heard that. Talking to Jews, especially Jews, the Ten Commandments, they've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. If you've ever lusted after anyone, you are an adulterer to God. My sniffles have just gone into cancer territory. Jesus says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you the truth. If you've ever hated anyone, or if you've ever called someone a fool, you are a murderer to God. So who are you looking at right now? You're looking at an adulterer and a murderer. Well, you had this old, every time I'd preach this, uh, one of my other, one of the churches I preached at, I had an old lady come up and go, you shouldn't be saying that because you never really did it. Loved her to death. She was sweet. Maybe let God determine if I'm an adulterer or not. And then check this out. If that wasn't good enough for us, if you're the only person in history who's never hated or lusted, if you happen to be here today, I'm glad you're here. Can I get your autograph? If you think you've made it past that, Jesus ends the sermon by saying this. In other words, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you thought you made it out, I got you. Jesus says, but that's why I've come. That's why I've come. I've come because you have a disease. And I've come because not just you have a disease, but you have a terminal disease. That's why I'm here. Jesus is the doctor. He is the medicine and he is the cure. Jesus has diagnosed our disease as sin and he has determined our prognosis is exclusion from the kingdom of God in hell. And his message is the medicine. Repent and believe that I am the cure. That's what it takes. That's all it takes. Repent. Turn from your sin and follow Christ. Leave your tax booth and follow Jesus. And believe that Jesus is the cure. That he came and willingly took our disease out of us and put it in himself. And he died on the cross. And he took our prognosis for us. He took the wrath of God. That cup of God's wrath that is being stored up against me. Jesus drank it down to the dregs. In the garden before crucifixion, what does he ask? If this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What cup is he talking about? The wrath of God. Jesus drank the wrath of God for me so that I can drink the cup of mercy and grace and love for all eternity. How great is that? How great is that? Jesus is the doctor, the medicine, and the cure. Don't walk past him and think that you are, that you are healthy because we are all sick, in desperate need for Jesus, and this is why he came. The Pharisees didn't like this because the Pharisees had this philosophy. You must behave and then you can belong. 
their philosophy is God will not accept you until you make yourself righteous enough. How can they do that if they're not even willing to teach sinners? You need to heal your own disease and then you can see the doctor. How many churches, how many church people have this kind of philosophy? When we make people feel unwelcome at our church because of their sins, we are asking them to heal themselves before they can come and see the doctor. John MacArthur says it this way, Jesus will be killed because Jesus doesn't meet the Pharisees' holiness standards. Jesus will be killed because Jesus invites sinners first and then tells them to live holy lives. That's what's going to get him killed. Jesus, according to the Pharisees, didn't require enough holiness from his followers. Pharisees, you behave and then you might be able to belong. Jesus' message is this, you belong and then you behave. Jesus' message is this, God loves you as you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Are you with me? That's worth the price of admission. I stole it from somewhere, I can't even remember where, but that's worth the price of admission. God loves you as you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. You come to the doctor to be healed. You bring your diseases to be healed. You bring all of your baggage to Jesus and He welcomes you with open arms. He has a banquet with you. He lays down an intimate friendship with you. He has all these things and then He heals you. And He tells you, now go, live like a healed person. that's controversial too we've kind of swung the pendulum has kind of swung the opposite direction in our churches see we had a response against kind of the Pharisees of the church rightly we had a response against that where people thought they had to have a dress code or people thought you have to behave a certain way to be part of church and and then the church has swung over correctly we've gone away from that and we we've realized no we want sinners here because we're all sinners no we want people here if they're not disruptive and dangerous that everybody can be here it doesn't matter we want them here to hear the word and the pendulum has swung this way to where the pendulum I'm afraid is swinging the opposite direction where they where we have now taken the message of Jesus that you belong and then you behave and we've 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 broken it apart, and now we've preached Jesus' message like this. You belong, period. Jesus' message is not that. Jesus' message is this. Repent, turn from your sins, and believe the good news. Jesus' message is, belong, and I will teach you and empower you to behave. Come as you are. God loves you enough to bring you in as you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Listen, you will not repent and believe the gospel and be saved and then live like Jesus isn't king over your life. 
You will not come to the doctor to be healed and then go home living like you have cancer. That's not the message of Jesus. Believer, this is how much God loves you. True repentance and belief produces holiness. You will live like you're, like you're whole again. We will still sin, but we will live wanting to live like we are healthy again, healed by Jesus. Believer, God loves you so much that when he heals you, he sends God the Holy Spirit to indwell in you, to indwell, to be in you like he was in the temple. His presence is no, we don't need a temple anymore because you are the temple of God because he indwells you. He lives in you. If God lives in you, that will change your life. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us this way. Then therefore the fruit of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit produces in you is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Holiness is evidence of being saved. It is not the ticket to be saved. It is the receipt for being saved. Are you with me? Does that make sense? It's not the ticket to get you in. Good work's not the ticket to get you in. It is the receipt to show that you are already with Jesus. That's good. That is good stuff. Thank you, Jesus. So, as we live our lives as believers, as we preach the gospel as we teach the gospel. Let us not break apart any of Jesus' sayings. Let us not say that you have to behave before you belong because that is not the words of Jesus. But let us, not also, let us also not say you belong, period. No, you belong and then you learn how to follow Jesus. That's the evidence. And to, to leave that off is to do a hateful thing to somebody. Jesus has come for sinners, not those who incorrectly think they are holy enough to be right with God. And to be saved, to be near Jesus, doesn't require any good works or righteousness. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. No one comes to Jesus and says, wow, I'm here, I've worked really hard, look how super righteous I am. No one can say that. We are not saved by that. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, through believing the gospel. And evidence of salvation is then good works. As James 2 says, faith without works is dead. I'm not healed if I don't have any good works spurred on by the Holy Spirit. I'm not healed. What am I? I'm, a, I'm dead. I'm still sick in my sin. So salvation, the salvation of Jesus is so merciful and forgiving that the worst sinner can approach Christ for salvation without any good works and the salvation of Jesus is so loving and powerful that you will not be saved without the wonderful transformation that comes from being given God, the Holy Spirit, living in you. Are you with me? Jesus is a friend of sinners. Let's, talk about how, let's end with this. Let's talk about how controversial that is. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That is scandalous. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, in his power, 
All things, the Bible says, was created by him and for him. We are his, your dog is his, your bank account is his, your neighbor is his, the stars are his, the oceans are his. Every molecule has its origin and future in Jesus. That's who he is. His value is infinite. He has the name that is above every name. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. If all things and all people who exist and could possibly exist throughout all time were stacked up against Jesus, his value would outweigh ours, and it's not even close. That's how valuable this man is. All good things find their origin in his nature. If you have experienced anything good, it is from Jesus. How merciful is he? How good is he? You experience this good thing because Jesus gave it to you from his gracious heart. His holiness is perfect. He has committed no sin and no deceit was ever found in his mouth. Every thought and action of his is totally righteous. In every relationship, he is the perfect partner. And his holiness is all-consuming. He deserves and demands total obedience. That Jesus is deserving of total obedience is the ultimate necessary truth. That Jesus deserves these things is truer than 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's truer than gravity. It's the most true thing that is. It's the most true thing that is. And yet this man, Jesus, has come and he's called the mafia member to be his follower. He's called the preacher who will continue to sin. He called me a sinner to follow him. He calls you to follow him. He's a friend of sinner. Not just a friend of sinners. He eats. He wants an intimate friendship with wicked sinners. Jesus' mercy and compassion and grace is so powerful that he can stomach intimate friendships with sinners. In his mercy, he overlooks our weaknesses and comes close. Even more than that, our, weakness, our wickedness was pointed at him the entire time. He is the offended party. He is the one we sin against and it is he who seeks us. He comes close to sinners. Not like I come close to sinners every day. He comes close to sinners who have wronged him. We disobey him and curse him with the air he gives us to breathe and the muscles he gives us to move and the brain he gave us as he knit us together in our mother's womb. And yet he came to be our friend and he doesn't come just to be our friend, but he comes to be friendly to sinners. A friend takes on the burdens of others. A friend tells the hard things in love. A friend cares and eases suffering. A friend works for our good. And Jesus was ultimately friendly to sinners in this. He saw your disease, and he is willing to take it on himself. He sees your sin, and he's willing to take it on himself. And he takes it to the cross. And he drinks that cup of the wrath of God that was destined for you and destined for me. And he drinks it to its dregs. And then he rises again three days later and fills that same cup up with mercy and grace and love and blessings for all eternity. So the question is, the question is, do you realize that you have a disease? 
And the question is, have you sought Jesus as the only cure? And church people, are you expecting people to behave before they belong? Or do we love people enough to love them like Jesus? You belong. And we love you enough to not let you stay that way. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to enter a time of invitation, a time of decision. I don't know a more clear, there's not a clearer passage on salvation that I know of. My friends, if you're here today, you're a believer. Take this time as we sing together. Praise his holy name that he has forgiven your sins, that he has taken your disease on himself, that you have an eternity with God. And if you're here today and you're still in your sins, if you're still in your sins, if you can't admit that you have a disease, if you think that you could cure that disease yourself, my friends, you are not promised one more day. If that is your attitude, that you are not sinful or that you can be good enough, and if you die in that attitude, you will die in your sins and be apart from God forever. So we beg you, we ask you, during this song, give your sins to Jesus like the tax collector. Jesus is calling you and saying, follow me. Abandon your sins and follow him.